Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode I invite on a new guest to help me unpack some of the ideas in an influential piece of writing. Today we're looking at The Psychology of the Child by Jean Piaget. Piaget was a Swiss biologist before he established his career studying the cognitive development of children. He lived from 1896 to 1980, and today he's considered to be one of the fathers of the field of developmental psychology. Though he might not have liked this title very much, he liked to think of himself as an epistemologist rather than a psychologist. Today helping me unpack these ideas was Jeff Michael Johnson. We talked about a bunch of things. We got into Piaget's thoughts on how a child learns, how and why children play, the stages of cognitive development, the rich fantasy life of children, the development of language in children, how morality evolves in children, as well as some of Piaget's biggest concepts like conservation, object permanence, egocentrism, animism, adaptation, assimilation, and accommodation. As you can see, we had a lot of ground to cover, but uh, I thought we did a pretty good job moving through all this stuff, and this conversation was a bunch of fun. Uh, We got into a lot of Jeff's stories working with preschoolers. We talked about a lot of the different experiments Piaget conducted with children, and uh, I learned a lot, definitely helped increase my understanding and empathy for children, uh, just knowing how they think. Um, This really... This stuff really blew me away. I hope that it has the same effect on you, and I hope you enjoy it. So here it is, my conversation with Jeff on the psychology of the child. Well, so we met teaching babies music. Yeah, we did. Uh, Or... Teaching, maybe teaching's teaching a loose is, word. Right. We, we played music and babies, <laughs> and babies tolerated it. Cooed around <laughs> yeah. and grabbed at our instruments it's, and exactly. shook, shook toys. Yeah. Yeah. But they looked, sometimes they looked engaged. Yeah. Yeah. The program was uh, called Songs for Seeds and was like a kind of mommy and me kind of program. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Jeff and I, uh, yeah, we played music. And uh-huh. Did you that. did more. You had more of an active role. I was oh, like, sure. I was just kind of playing drums and smiling. You were like, <laughs> the kids love you. I, d- too. I did the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a weird like front man. You're the front man. Weird baby rock star. <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. a weird uh, idea. But you but... have the gift. Like you are. You I mean, are a you know, kid whisperer. I just like them. Yeah, and they like you. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Yeah, because otherwise uh, we'd border on like creeper. So. <laughs> Yes, for sure. I just I enjoy hanging out with children. Yeah, you know. And, and now you're teaching preschool. Yeah, so now I teach preschool. I'm mostly with like three ish age. Mm-hmm. That's the sweet spot for me. But yeah. like it fluctuates, you know, up and down. I just finished a summer program, which was a larger like age range. Mm. So about two to five, five and a oh, half. Okay. We had you know. Wow. So that's fun to get them all. They were all together. Together. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty big job. Try to entertain a three-year-old and a five-and-a-half-year-old at, at the same, same time. time. Yeah. Yeah, and I that's... saw a dad trying to do that on my way over here. <laughs> oh, yeah. His five-year-old was, like, running away, and, yeah, he was <laughs> having to chase after both uh-huh, of them. Uh-huh. But, um... Yeah. Yeah, that one's fun. Well, yeah, and um, so then we were talking uh, around Christmas time. You were telling me, you're, like, back in school and, like, studying a lot of... Uh, back in grad school, studying a bunch of yeah. childhood development stuff, and... 
I had been wanting to read Piaget for a while, so I was like, Jeff, wow. we got I got to have you on. We got. I hadn't. I mean, he wasn't on my radar before mm. taking class, so yeah. I don't know enough. I love that you were like, yeah, I'm just I a just nerd. Wanna, yeah, well, <laughs> just, you are, just, but uh, just, <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to read Piaget casually, just, just for fun. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we did. and it's we great. Are. It's been blowing my mind. Yeah, um, it really has. Uh, I've been reading. So we. I read a few things. We were kind of relying pretty heavily on this uh, Piaget primer by Dorothy Singer and Tracy Revinson, um, which I thought was great. And one of the challenges with Piaget, well, there's a few. He wrote in Swiss, Swiss. Uh, I mean, it's French. Yeah, French. Right. Yeah. But he's from he, Switzerland. He's from Switzerland, writing in France, yeah. French. And a lot of his stuff either isn't translated or is translated pretty poorly. Not that I've read a lot of it but um and he also didn't really write anything short and like (laughs) digestible so we were kind of like all right well how can we tackle this what's the best way and we got hold of this book and it i thought it was really put together well Mm -hmm. and like lots of good examples Mm -hmm. a very good primer as you would say (laughs) yeah as it is called yeah well cool so maybe we could start by talking a little bit about like what piaget was trying to study Okay. Um, he's a kind of interesting background. Like, he was basically a child prodigy. Like, he was um, studying mollusks when he was like fifteen or something crazy, and like writing <laughs> academic papers. Sounds and he was like fascinating <laughs> in his teens. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, and then he went on to he calls himself a genetic epistemologist, which. Just kind of the working definition. It's a field of study which combines the study of biological contributions to intelligence with the theoretical study of knowledge. Uh, It takes an interdisciplinary approach to the problem of development through the study of psychology, philosophy, logic, mathematics, biology, and physics. Yeah, yeah, you can see, see already that like he doesn't write short things, even yeah. just in the definition of what we would call him. Right? Like that was a lot to digest. Yes, <laughs> it was funny. I was also reading this book. Um, it's uh, it's called Conversations with Piaget, and it's like some interviews. And in there, he is very clear that he does not want to be called a psychologist. He's mm. like, I am an epistemologist. epistemologist I am. Right. St- he wants to study how how we think, and that's what's behind it and the best way he found to do that was through studying children and like how we learn things over time yeah i think that's um maybe what's fascinating for me too is in that idea like as a quote unquote preschool teacher yeah like i don't feel like a teacher Mm. um you know you think teacher and i'm not actually not big on education formal education like academic Mm. learning doesn't doesn't do it for me. Yeah. Like, I don't enjoy taking class right now. I'm in the grad school, and I don't enjoy that at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm just doing it to get to the other side. And, um, But so with the preschoolers, like, it's not the education or the what we learn, right? It's I don't as much care the what we learn, but I am fascinated in the how. And mm. I'm fascinated with that process in them and working with them um, of, like, what that looks like and seeing their... Seeing the wheels work, like yeah. seeing the wheels turn for them is what, like, what really is something that I'm fascinated with. If, you know, if they don't get, if they don't learn their letters by the time they've left me, I don't care. Yeah. But if I see Maybe you them, don't say that to the parents. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't listen. Don't listen. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of true. Um, yeah. But like, 
Well, you're like Piaget then, because yeah. that's he says somewhere else here, like um this was this was in the Piaget primary. They said uh he was concerned with how a child thinks, not mm-hmm. not what. Yeah. So he's and a lot of his kind of research methods were having these kind of more informal conversations with children because he was interested in the process of how they were figuring things out. Not so much what the answers were, but how they arrived at the answers. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. So, those are the things I love. Those are the conversations that I just like immediately think and enjoy. And I feel like I'm in a, sometimes it's a weird place because it's, they can't, they're not really even are able to articulate that yet. Mm. And there's like a little frustration in communication there, but that's when you can have those great conversations of them working through whatever it is they're figuring out, whatever yeah. work problem toy they are doing. And like, well, why did you put that one there? And when they can tell of any reason, whatever that is, even if it's kind of seeming nonsense to us, mm. like that is the fascinating thing. Totally. So cool. Totally. Yeah. So we'll eventually get to his stages of development. But before doing that, maybe we can just talk about, in a nutshell, like how a child learns, how he kind of thought about it. Mm. So we have these kind of three terms that are very big in like the Piagetian literature, which is adaptation. Okay, word, Piagetian. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. That's its own term. Uh Um, Adaptation, assimilation, and accommodation. So I'm just going to read through these and then we can kind of unpack what they mean and give some examples. So adaptation is the continuous process of using the environment to learn and learning to adjust to changes in the environment. It is a process of adjustment consisting of two complementary processes, assimilation and accommodation. All right. So assimilation is the process of taking in new information and fitting it into a preconceived notion about objects or the world. For example, a baby has developed the notion of grasping or sucking the breast or bottle. She will do the same with any other object placed before her, such as a rattle or puppet. And then accommodation is the process by which an infant learns by changing their conception of the world in order to make sense of the new information, uh, as opposed to applying it, what they already know, onto the new information. So assimilation essentially is, you know, the child sucks the breast and milk comes out they're used to that yeah. they're like all right this is this is how the world works you right. you suck things and <laughs> milk comes out so then they're given a bottle this would be assimilation they're given a bottle and they suck the bottle and milk comes out of the bottle and they're like oh wow okay so this worked with this first thing the breast and now sure. it works with the bottle so what else does this work on? yeah like- so now they yeah you hand <laughs> yeah. the child a rattle and the child sucks on it and it's just like the hell's going on like right, where's right. where's What's the, the milk like so now they're forced assimilation didn't work in that instance now they're forced to accommodate they're forced to change their model of the world mm-hmm. essentially and they're like okay well maybe my conception of the world up until this point was just like you suck things and food comes out <laughs> now it's like okay well you suck certain things and right. food comes out um and so yeah, that's just such an interesting process <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that, and, and he says uh, somewhere else that assimilation always comes first and that we we first try to assimilate and then if we kind of run into that roadblock, then we're forced to accommodate and like, you know, realize yeah. our model is maybe incomplete. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, it's cool to start there because 
it feels like setting this up is so much of what he talks about and what we've already like talked about in our you know pre conversations of this idea yeah. that this is just this is just humans right like we we put it in this um umbrella of child development and how a child learns but it's like this is just how humans work things and it's like as you get these terms and talk about this process i mean i can that makes sense to me right yeah. but like the idea of you get information and you put it with what you know that's what mm -hmm. brains do right so i get a new piece of information maybe i'm meeting a new person yeah and what you do is like your brain categorizes it it puts it where it wants sure. it to be i put like i'm gonna meet zach for the first time and like based on whatever signals mm. i receive or you give me or you tell about me like i'm gonna place you and i'm gonna think about others like you like that's yeah. what we do totally um and then it's like, oh, and then you tell me a new piece of information and go, oh, that doesn't fit that category. That doesn't fit there. So now I need to rework this. I need to broaden my spectrum mm. of what this means, right? And this is how every new piece of information comes to us. It's not yeah. just like a baby in a rattle or anything. It's just all new information, right? Totally. One example from my life, I when I was in my early 20s, I was really big into like Myers-Briggs uh, oh, yeah. personality I assessment. I love good personality stuff, yeah. <laughs> it's cool and it's very useful and it works in a lot of applications. <laughs> but what I found happening was like I would, you know, kind of fit the whole world and all people into this mm -hmm. model of the world through Myers-Briggs. And then I started getting, having things happen that wouldn't fit the model. And I wasn't able to assimilate. Sure. And instead of like changing my model or realizing that it was incomplete, I would try to like be like, oh no, well, that type of person just does this sometimes. Like I would yeah, still yeah, try yeah. to, I Exceptions think the bias is, or yeah, yeah, the bias is to try to like preserve your model and just keep assimilating rather than to accommodate and be mm -hmm. like, oh, actually, I need a different model or I need a, a more complex model. Mm hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean. I, I was in the sense that three-year-old breaking down crying. <laughs> just like, no. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, people say this to me a lot as a preschool teacher. And I'm like, I talk about my day. And I'm like, you're really patient. It's like, I don't know that. I don't feel that. I, yeah. But I try to understand where these kids are coming from. And it's these ideas to me that. It don't make me need to think about having patience. It's like, yeah. this is hard for you. This You're three and this new idea is really hard for you. You have mm. been home for all of your life for three years. Yeah. And you were just put into a classroom with 14 other three-year-olds and three adults. Yeah. Giving you a whole new system of how the world works. And yeah, maybe I told you that you need to go over there now. And it's like, that's the breaking point that mm -hmm. why I thought <laughs> I had this world figured out. And like, they're just constantly going through this uh, again yeah. and again. Uh, and yeah. I, I, I need to hug a child one, right now. I'm like, <laughs> I feel for them all over. That was one of my, the most biggest impacts on me reading this stuff was just like increased empathy for mm. kids just because it's just like, and we'll get into some of the ways that they view the world and like some of their behavior starts to make a lot of sense when you're like, oh, you actually think that your mother vanished because you don't understand object permanence. Yeah. Like we'll we'll talk about that. And yeah. it's it's like, okay, then I can 
I actually understand why you're melting down right now. Yeah. Like, I would be freaked out, too, if I thought this person just disappeared right? off the face of the right? earth. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, those ideas, I just maybe for the example of perspective, but I do remember recently someone saying to me in one of our child development discussions in school, um, the idea of we try to soothe a child like it's no big deal when the balloon goes up in the air. Mm. But for a three-year-old, like not understanding exactly about that or that full loss, like we would have a meltdown if our phone fell on the subway and like for for a child that's the same or flew away I would, yeah I mean, right? well that would just be weird <laughs> even more <right>? freaked out. <laughs> yeah so you know just having patience and grace for that understanding of no for that child that actually is a very big deal mm-hmm. they're one of the most valuable objects to them just vanished yeah like i'm sorry i need a minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, awesome. Well, maybe we can start yeah. going through these uh, stages of development. Let's do it. Um, well, actually, before we go through the stages, maybe we could just talk about the stages themselves. Um, so this is probably the thing that Piaget is most known for is these four stages of development and uh, a few things just about them. So he kind of has average ages that children tend to be in these stages. Um, I think it's zero to two for the sensory motor uh, two, two to, to seven, seven for the pre-operational, seven to eleven for concrete operations, and eleven to sixteen for formal operations. And but he does say like children pass through these stages at different rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for this. So basically, like if you're a parent, like don't get freaked out if your child is like quote behind. Um, Although it's easier said than done. Um, But, you know, a lot of things factor in uh, genetics, emotional maturity, um, like exposure to certain stimuli, the cultural influences can all kind of impact at what rates these child children move through these stages. Mm -hmm. The motor skills are developing as the child moves through these stages, as well as cognitive abilities. And also these things are a lot of times like intimately related and that like it's no surprise that as a child learns to walk i.e motor skill like their cognitive abilities kind of develop in all these fascinating Mm -hmm. ways Mm -hmm. or that in you know piaget as a biologist you know kind of looking at like the reason that children who enter formal operations are able to start thinking logically is because like their prefrontal cortex is starting to develop and it's just like, okay, well, so yeah, you really can't separate like the biological development with the, uh, cognitive development Mm -hmm. They go hand in hand. And that's what, I mean, he's big on, he, one of the leaders of just the idea of like letting children play. And that's how you learn because they're the movement, Mm -hmm. the manipulation of objects and the moving through their, the, the body has to develop. You have to move around with your body to understand the world, even cognitively. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 That's a big one. Yeah. Talking <clears throat> about play and we'll get into a lot of play and how play changes throughout these different stages. Um, he also says the transition between these stages is gradual. You know, you don't just like wake up one day and like level up and now you're like <laughs> the next level. Um, and all the say though, sometimes it feels like that. Almost. Sometimes <laughs> it's like you see a kid, make a shift and it's like 
something just happened in you between yesterday and today that you're almost looking at the world differently. So this is maybe a tangent, but I was watching this, the documentary on Netflix called Babies, mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. all about, it's like a docu-series, all the latest neuroscience about babies and their brains yeah. and development. And one of the things this uh, scientist found out was she measured the length of babies every day for like a year. And up you until mean length, like, like height, length, length, yeah. exactly. Um, and up until that point, we just kind of believed like, oh yeah, we just grow gradually grow like a little tiny, mm-hmm. like imperceptible bit at a time. And then, you know, we wake up and we're an inch taller. She actually found that that's not what happens. Children actually will go like sometimes up to 20 days without growing at all. And then in a 24 hour window grow like a centimeter and a half overnight. Wow. Which is like mind blowing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that explains kind of like the growing pains and yeah, stuff literal that growing pains ch- children sure. go through. Yeah. But yeah, this is pure speculation, but I wonder if there's <laughs> something analogous happening when a child is learning. Like there could actually yeah. be this like dormant period followed by like extreme growth. But I have no science to back that up. Sure. But, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think that makes sense too in um, just in a human energy capacity, like what the body is doing and what the whole person is doing, you know, we, um, as you mentioned, they don't necessarily move through these stages, like exactly, there's no exact progression. Mm-hmm. Um, and parts of them, right, are uh, grow faster or grow sooner, yeah. right? Like, maybe they're developing more physically at this time, and then they're developing emotionally. And so it might seem like one child is, quote unquote, behind in mm. some way, but they're probably ahead in a different way. Um, yeah. But yeah, just thinking about what the body and what the whole person, mind, emotions, body are able to do. It's like, if you're, you're probably like growing an inch overnight, like you don't have the space for your brain to maybe develop in the same way mm. in that time. It's like, well, this is yeah. cognitive development break time <laughs> yeah. while we're growing physically, or I don't know, just some of those... Well, yeah, we we think of it all so linear. Totally. And, and he does talk about that. Like, you can have a child who is in, like, the pre-operational stage in terms of their language and maybe the concrete operation stage in terms of their, like, math and, you know, a, like, ability with numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're not all, yeah, again, it's not all moving from one thing to the other. And I guess the last thing maybe to say about this before we talk about the actual stages is uh, I found this really interesting. This is from the Piaget Primer. It says, quote, in his later years, he wrote that psychologists have relied too much on the notion of the stage. (laughs) And so this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about assimilation and accommodation is that like Piaget created this model of the world of these (laughs) stages that children go through. And I guess what he found was the, you know, kind of his followers or or people after him kind of became too married to this model of stages. And he was just like, guys, no, like the stages are just there to kind of help us. But like, don't fall in love with the model. It's a guide. It's a guide, but it has restrictions like any other tool. That's, yeah, Uh, that's a big deal. I mean, to to also say that a, a 
on your own system, right? Yeah. Like that have come through that. And yeah, like here's this whole system I've created. Also like chill out about it. <laughs> <laughs> Relax. Yeah. Well, so let's dig in. All right. All, all right. right. So sensory motor stage. This is the first stage. Again, this is birth to two years old, mm-hmm. usually. Uh, I think in order to understand kind of how the child is thinking at this age, we kind of have to understand egocentrism a little bit. So Solid. this is... The definition is uh, the interpretation of all events in terms of one's own subjective experience, a lack of awareness that there are points of view different from one's own. What adults and, did you just think about there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So the child, the child this is another, the child is born into egocentrism. The child sees himself as the center of the universe with, with everything revolving around him and occurring solely for his pleasure. And I think at another point, yeah, e- egocentrism does not mean selfishness. No. It's just that they it's literally lack of perspective. Yeah, like, they literally can't understand that their subjective experience is not the only reality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's again. Here's another. <laughs> it's we can go seriously existential with this one, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, but that's um, some people don't really. Fully grow out of that. Fully grow out of that. I think, yeah. I think that's a, that is, you know, it's a philosophy of life that we think mm. through. It, it is, for anyone, it is impossible to understand the world from and really fully from another perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, that's why human relationships are wild because <laughs> that's kind of the point. I'm trying to understand mm. really how you're seeing the world. I'm trying to get your viewpoint. Um, and it's with kids. It's fascinating in that. Um, I guess I'll go back just to the idea of the patience with it. It's like we all have to start somewhere. We have to start there. And I think a lot of what um, the work that I get to do with kids, um, mm. I tend to be part of their first real socialization. Mm. Right. I mean, most kids have had playdates and they're at the park but like a new community and environment and that this idea of egocentrism is what we tend to be constantly working with kids on is yes you wanted to play with that block but you are now in a situation where someone else is here and so you can't just react the way you want to because it affects somebody else right and it's like it's one of the things that we kind of want to move them through really fast. Just get mm. this. Other people in the world exist, right? Just yeah. get this idea. Yeah. And it, you're not. Like, it'll take a long time to get... get us. None of us are fully there. Yeah. But... Well, and it's interesting because this can happen where kids literally can't put themselves in somebody else's shoes or figuratively. So Piaget did an experiment where they had a child looking at a object, like I forget what it was. Let's say it's an elephant, a child looking at the front of an elephant and then a doll was behind the elephant and they would have the child draw what they thought the doll was seeing and the child would draw what they were seeing, even though the doll was, you know, facing the back of the elephant. Mm -hmm. And then they would have the child switch places with the doll and then again, the child drew what they're seeing. So they literally think that other people 
are seeing, feeling, thinking exactly what they are. And then this also comes with like perspectives. Like there was one example where it's like the child can't understand that, you know, she thinks that her room looks great and her mom thinks、mm-hmm. that her room is a mess. Like it's like her, like her yeah. belief yeah, is yeah, yeah, just yeah. the taken, like, oh, everybody thinks this. Yeah. Because I think it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's <laughs> that, again, that's like going to hurt. Hurt your brain to understand that it's not the case. I mean, I think of that. I'm, I'm imagining the, the, my classroom now of just the conversations. It, we, we try to have very personal type conversations with a kid so they can understand, even just me, this person across、mm. from them, where do you live? And they, they all tell me New York City. And I'm like, I live in New York City too. Okay. And they're fine with that. But、yeah. then it's like, I live on a place called Roosevelt Island. And their world consists of just, for most of them, I work down, like, downtown. So it's like just that. And, I, but, and they'll say to me, but I live in New York City. And it's just、mm. this view of like, it, it has to be my, my New York City, right? It's、yeah. only my perspective of this city. I said, no, I, I live in New York City, but I'm like, takes me 40 minutes on the train. And it just, this idea is like, that, no, <laughs>、nope. I can't compute with that right now. I don't know what you're talking Come about. Come see me when I'm in my concrete <laughs> operation stadium. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.、Um, I, I enjoy those conversations, but it's like, it's, that stuff is very interesting to see the, yeah, it's just that egocentrism of, I cannot perceive the world. I can't even theoretically put myself in your shoes, right? Yeah. You live here. They ask me when they talk about their things, their mommy, their daddy,、mm. brothers, dogs.、Um, they want to know, like, they can only ask me questions as far as their exact experience, right? If they have a dog, what's your dog's name?、Mm. Like, it's assumed that you must experience the world the way I experience right, it. Right, right, right. Look at the. Joking, we all joke in teachers. It's a bougie school I work at. It's like, Jeff, where's your house on the Hamptons? <laughs> like, no, girl. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> They can't imagine, Tell right? Tell me about that, your private life.、Yeah, right? Yes. They can't imagine that I experience the world differently and that's not where I'm at in the weekends because that's just that's amazing. their life. They, life is experienced <laughs> their way. So, well, yeah. And we've, we've kind of ventured a little bit into. Pre operational, like two、sure. to seven yeah, as yeah. well,、I、which、always. is totally fine. But this egocentrism doesn't just isn't just contained within the sensory、yeah. motor. But another factor of、uh, egocentrism in the, this、uh, sensory motor stage、mm-hmm. is <clears throat> object permanence. So, this is just kind of the working definition、mm-hmm. object permanency is an object exists even when it is not directly visible or otherwise subject to the sensory experience of a child. So, when a baby is first born, they don't understand that when mom leaves and goes in another room, she's still there. She's just like in another room.、Mm-hmm. It's like out of sight, out of existence. Right. And Piaget noticed that, like, when children will drop a toy at this very young age, they won't even look for it because they'll just, like, assume that it's just disappeared. And again, going back to your balloon example, that kind of ex- explains, like, okay, yeah, this kid is having a meltdown because, like, she, like, she thinks mom is just gone. Right. 
And it's right. like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Separation anxiety yeah. in that. Like yeah. you're experiencing for the first time that that's why, you know, you do, he ta- they talk about, that's why weirdly peekaboo is actually a very big developmental thing. Mm. Just yeah. showing like, I'm not here. No, no, I'm still here. Yeah. You know, that that's not just a silly fun game to make a baby smile. That is a very big idea for a, baby to toddler in this stage to grasp right yeah i am still here mom does still exist just covered by hands and it's not until like that like eight or nine month period that a baby will react to Mm peekaboo because before that like they're not grasping object permanence so when a baby is success successfully quote playing peekaboo or reacting to peekaboo with just like laughter or just insane enthusiasm (laughs) that is them having a hunch that hey mom is still there she's just behind her hands and like now she peekabooed and that confirmed this suspicion i had whereas before that there was just like oh mom's just gone now (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) that's terrifying um and again this that's this ties to egocentrism because the the child can't literally can't conceive that anything outside of their field of sensory experience exists. Right, right. That's a good tie. You're right. And we could talk a little bit about the language and play and morality or lack of morality at this stage. I wish, yeah. That's something that I got um, always mo- into. Um, <clears throat> I, I think most of the language at this stage is just that what he calls Ecolalia, I can't. E C H O L A L I A. This is when the child repeats sounds and words because they enjoy. Yeah, when they enjoy listening to themselves make sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is fun. Yeah, it's fun to hear. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's about what it is. It's like okay, cute. It makes me think of Um, uh, Elf, the movie where where Will Ferrell says. Francisco. That's <laughs> yeah. a fun name to say. A- Francisco. <laughs> right. So like a lot of what children are doing at this very early, yeah. they're just enjoying the pure like tactile. Yeah, like, like, yeah, it's just fun um, to do. Last night I was just over at a friend's house uh, and their daughter is probably 18 months. Mm. Um, talking pretty well for an 18 month. Uh, and she kept saying, smell smoke smell smoke and apparently they had uh like a smoker next to them and it was like coming into their vents or something at some point okay but this was like a month ago and so now she's just like come up with this that she really just likes to say like feels the doesn't know really understand what it means right there's no they're just meaning she's just repeating this fun little phrase i smell smoke smell smoke they're just like natural beat poets yeah Yeah. (laughs) right um i remember a kid from last year uh that would do the, like very much this, those probably later stages, but this idea of just playing with the sounds of it. Mm. It wasn't words for meaning, but he would find a word and he would say it and just roll it over, over, and it would like, kind of blibbity blobbities, bloobity blah, blah, mm. and just p- play and have fun with it in that way. And it was like, it's, it's very fun to watch. It's a very interesting way to, I mean, I don't. I don't know. It's just like one of those things that we, I guess, move through. But it's like just the cute baby talk, but with 
oh, this has a point, right? We're, we're trying to figure out what these words are doing and how they feel in my mouth and how right. they feel. But in at least tongue. initially, it's, they're, they're not thinking any of that. It's just yeah. like, this is a fun thing yeah. to do and it's amusing. Yeah. And that's also similar and it's to a pop music idea. I feel like we have to, I have to mm. bring, come out. There's like yeah. mouthfeel in pop music, right? Uh, yeah. There's still things that like feel like this, this idea is still enjoyable in a way. Like some words are good good to say mm -hmm. that just feel good to say and that's how sometimes how you write a good pop song you throw in a good mouthfeel good mouthfeel yeah <laughs> yes it's true we we resort to our uh, always our inner kid well and they also talk about uh practice play is um so this is play that has no purpose other than that of sensation so this would be like a baby kicking the mobile in the crib and like squealing with delight or swinging on a swing or um yeah making these like fun noises to say mm -hmm. that's really mm -hmm. the extent of the, the play of it right yeah and uh yeah the example they used in in the primer in the book they were saying like adults still do this sometimes like if you're trickling sand through your fingers at the beach like that is a type of practice play yeah or even like i thought of like those uh, fidget spinners yeah, that are big sure. like that's totally like practice play yeah we do a lot of um you know we call it like a sensory bin or something mm -hmm. in preschool and it's just that idea where it doesn't necessarily have it's not a purpose of a yeah. work that you're transferring or anything it's just like a water beads or even sand mm -hmm. or things like it's just the feeling and that you know um and especially for kids in that young age that's just it's also soothing it's just like we're just playing and that's it yeah it doesn't have to have a grand purpose like that is its own purpose play is its own purpose totally that's yeah. it well yeah. and then also like morality at this this stage uh so P piaget's like moral stages of development don't necessarily line up with his mm. cognitive stages but uh he calls zero to four the pre-moral stage and um basically yeah the child at this stage feels no yeah. moral obligation to no rules idea. and i, I kind of thought this probably is also because morality requires a conception of other people yeah and social sure. socializing if, if we're fully egocentric at this point there's no there's no morality yeah it's just me what, like <laughs> what i like and what i want and what feels good to me yeah right yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds um, like an enjoyable existence yeah, right. <laughs> um well, cool. Maybe we can move on to pre-operational. Yeah, that's, you know, that's my jam. That's yeah, my jam. so this the is two to seven-ish yeah. years old. So, yeah, this is like the kind of age that you're working with. Yeah, for sure. Preschool. That, that's the stuff where... Kindergarten. And I think, I mean, a big crux of the difference is just moving into speech development in a real way where they're now able to communicate some of the ideas of what they're doing and mm -hmm. why they're doing. And that's... That's kind of why it's extra fascinating to me, I think. Yeah. Um, because we hear all of these things um, and we hear their reasons why, which to us might seem like total nonsense. Like, yeah. why are you doing this thing? Or we hear their logic around how the world works. They're able to start articulating these ideas that they've started to develop. And as we go back to the, the schema, like the you get to hear what they have thought of. Well, mm. why does do that? How does how does a train work? And they come up with a. I don't even know how a train idea. works. Well, <laughs> but they'll come up with an idea, yeah, probably. They'll still you give know, an answer, and they'll tell you, yeah. and it'll be incredible, <laughs> and it'll be great. And it's it's like 
uh, I, there's something in there I didn't write down, but like it's it's kind of nonsense, but there is some like reason for it. There's something that they have found or observed, mm. and well, I'm just that must be why, right? Yeah, the train works because I got in it. It might be it. It doesn't really make sense of from our point of view how that train's running but like because i got in it the train works and that's the idea that's right so this is from the primer uh quote the preschooler is constantly questioning investigating new things the child knows the world only from her own experience if she can't find an explanation for something she'll make one up Mm -hmm. the magic rituals children believe in getting a wishbone out of the chicken not stepping on the sidewalk cracks are attempts to control a world which doesn't make very much sense and th- I couldn't help think about like primitive mythology with mm. a lot of this when we're talking about like certain superstitions, like certain tribes who believed that, I don't know, when a comet came, that mm-hmm. was a sign to them that they were going to have a good harvest or yeah. a bad harvest. Right. It's that kind of still like trying to make sense out of the unknown. And uh, uh, yeah, there's like a, um, the cause and effect relationship. Everything has a cause and effect relationship in a way, but it doesn't necessarily really make any logical sense. Yeah. Right. The comet came and that must mean this. Here's the cause and this is the effect, even though it's not necessarily. It might have just logical. happened once as a coincidence. Right. Right. And I was listening to a podcast with this woman and she was saying, like, I guess her daughter heard. At, her daughter was in this pre-operational stage, and she heard her grandfather sneeze at the same time that there was a loud bang. Okay. And so for the longest time, she was just convinced that loud noises make grandpa sneeze. And like yeah. to undo that belief, they had to be like, look, grandpa's sneezing, and there's not a loud sound. Yeah. So it's like we, again, this is another bias that carries into adulthood. We are very quick to just like, uh, a point causality to things that maybe aren't ca- causal and just happened once at the same time. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's for that tribe. It's like, okay, well, one year there was a comet and then we had a good harvest. So then we are just like, okay, there's a pattern. Like that must be true. Even though that was just like dumb luck. Yeah. That was trying to find it. There's this idea he, one calls juxtaposition reasoning like just two things kind of shoved together Mm. that to most of us wouldn't seem like they're related at all but exactly you hear a loud noise and grandpa sneeze so those must have effect on each other right i feel like we still hear stories um if this is something as adults that we sometimes remember of like i thought this for the longest time because just like it's yeah. in some ways this kind of thing stays with you if it's this cause and effect like some weird coincidence occurred mm-hmm. and this can be um also a source of big like again if a child is still like egocentric it's around them and around how i experience the world so it's like i did this thing and mommy went to work yeah and then oh shoot i never will do this thing again <laughs> or you know yeah. however that works like they have this control in some way, mm-hmm. right, over the the circumstances. And that's, that's really a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. It's going back to, again to that like a an in a incorrect reason 
is more comforting than like an yeah. incomplete model. Yeah, right. Because uh, we're always trying to make sense of everything. So at least yeah. there's that, right? Well, another part of, we were talking a little bit about language and speech at this pre-operational stage. One of the other facets that's kind of interesting was what he calls the monologue. Mm. Mm-hmm. This is um, whether a child is alone or in the middle of a group, he talks to himself about himself for himself. He is oblivious to any listeners. Um, or in another point, I think they mm-hmm. say uh, either oblivious or just doesn't care that other people are listening. So it's like basically the child is verbalizing their inner monologue. Yeah out loud and like we've all heard kids do this right right it's very very interesting to hear (laughs) some of the best Um, some of the best things you learn about them just like talking without anybody (laughs) listening really and when they think no one's listening and you get to sneak up on a kid and just be like what is going on (laughs) yeah (laughs) i I like it and i i've heard adults do this um like living in new york city (laughs) Yeah, I I was on the train a couple months ago and this woman was verbalizing like every thought that she had. And it was very fascinating just to hear like her saying, the weather is very hot today and that makes me feel kind of bad. And it's like, whoa, like you're actually, and and I think in another point, they even say like, this is something that carries on to adulthood. It's just Mm -hmm. that that now takes place silently in Mm -hmm. our head, hopefully for most of us. Mm-hmm. But the child is just um, just going for it. <laughs> yes. It's and I have to think it's helping them think through certain things. Sure, right? Like an, in a sense, like an external processing, yeah. right? We're just kind of working it and, it. and it goes with all of these other things that we are talking about. Like there's some of it that's just, well, now they've developed these skills and it just feels good to talk too. So I'm just mm. kind of saying this out loud and maybe does it have, does it have more meaning when I say it out loud or does it have more of an effect now that I say it aloud? And just like, it's yeah. all this experimentation too. So I just, I say it and well, I don't know. And here I am. And maybe this is how we deal with the world. I see people <laughs> talking all the time. So I guess I'm just going to still stay talking and like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And yeah. this eventually transitions into like a collective monologue. I might be getting ahead. This might be more concrete operations stage um, where two or more children are talking together. Mm. None of them is listening right, right. to or responding to the other. Um, so often the children are playing alongside one another. They're both kind of talking, having this kind of like mm-hmm. monologue mm-hmm. more or less together and even sometimes about the same subject, but it's not quite like coherent back and forth communication yet. Right. Right. And, I thought of Seinfeld. This is okay, one yeah. thing that happens in Seinfeld where, you know, George will be like, I just don't know what I'm going to do about my boss. What am I going to do about my boss? And L- Elaine will respond with like, can you believe that guy said to me, that thing to me? Do you believe <laughs> right. he said it? And then George will be like, I mean, my boss is getting back from vacation tomorrow. So they're like communicating, yes. but not really communicating. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I... I have this very vivid memory of being in a car with, um, I think it was my grandpa and like a, some other man around his age, like pretty at that time, they were probably like 75. Okay. Um, 
And just this very exact thing where it was almost toddler-esque of these two <laughs> older men having this conversation with their friend. Yeah. But it was like he was talking about golf and and he would wait for the person to respond, but the person responding was talking about his wife. And they would just like have this one-liner back and yeah. forth conversation. It was like exactly this kind of thing. So yeah, we... It's an interesting so like it. in- intermediary stage where, mm-hmm. yeah, the child is starting to converse but not still not quite and there's an a kind of analogous thing happening with play at this stage too and i think i parallel play parallel play Mm -hmm. yeah where um the child is like we use like a sandbox there's multiple kids in the sandbox and they're all playing next to each other but very much having their own experience playing and they enjoy each other's company but they're not really like playing with each other as much as like next to each other this is a lot of what like we experience and kind of work with and watch um kind of like report on if you Mm. will for what obvious stages of development with the kids that we see is that usually they come in right around the three-year mark and it's this they're they're fascinated with the idea of other kids now and so i have Mm. this environment and i yeah i want to play with you but they're not they're not doing anything really together. They're yeah. just next to each other, also playing with blocks. And you watch it, and that's that's the development that we kind of get to see as that takes place through time. And then it becomes, oh, but I want that block. And for a while, mm. it's fully still in this early stage where you can't even comprehend, but I want that block, so I must have it. Yeah. And you can't, they can't work on anything they can't play together it's just a parallel play well now i take what i want and then obviously mm. we get drama so we get to watch that okay well now <laughs> how do we think through there is a person next to you should you ask for that or yeah right right but that parallel play we get to see that that so well of uh and and them talking to themselves while they're doing it and yeah you yeah. see all of this kind of play out and the other aspect that i think is happening a lot of times in parallel play from my understanding, is that children at this age have a very rich uh, fantasy life. Mm. So it might be that, like, I'm in the sandbox and, like, I'm in a spaceship going around and, like, the kid next to me is, like, in his own fantasy of, like, I'm chasing a dinosaur or whatever. And, like, this is happening next to each other, but they're very much still having their own fantasies side by side. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's when like, that's when the fun really occurs, and then they try uh, because as it's like, like moving through those ideas and moving through those stages. I keep thinking about because it's like you see that, and it's clear, and we're doing. I'm doing my own thing, and I'm having my own fantasy world next to this person who's doing the same thing. But we do that for a few times, and we start to integrate a little bit, mm. but. But it's so clunky, you know, <laughs> figuring out what that is yeah. to to try to move on from this idea. And it's frustrating because, no, well, I'm a dinosaur. No, I'm a lion. Well, those don't exist in my – that can't exist in my world. Mm-hmm. But And then what do you do? And then they're mad at each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he calls this uh, symbolic play. So play that distorts reality and implies representation of an absent object. Um, so this would be like a kid – pretending that a cardboard box is a car or that a broom is a wild horse. Um, have you ever read Calvin and Hobbes? 
the comic like a little okay that was always my favorite uh and he's definitely in this pre-operational stage and he a lot of the comics are you see in the first few panels him as like a astronaut in space or whatever like having this insane mission and like you know captain stupendous like jumps over and like and then you cut to the last panel and it's like what's really happening he's like sitting in math class Mm. like pulling some girl's hair or something so yes the the fantasy Mm -hmm. the fantasy experience is really big in this stage and like I think they're also saying that the child is also learning what is real and what is not real by engaging in this kind of play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, I mean, to go back continually back to these ideas, that's the reworking of all of it. That's the learning process of assimilation, accommodation, mm-hmm. all of that. Like, so what is real? What can I do in here? What, um, you know, and, mix that with the fun things of socialization in the midst of it and your your ideas of what's happening and yeah it's a lot like that's a lot for a kid right that's a lot to work through and figure out what is and what is real (laughs) what is real what is what is real here we are it's fully it's fully existential now (laughs) it is it is well especially we start getting into some of these other terms like animism and artificialism So animism is the attribution of life to inanimate objects, which is very common at this stage. So like um, believing that the teddy bear is is real or has, you know, it's like Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Why that appeals to kids so much. They love this idea of attributing human-like qualities to Mm -hmm. inanimate objects. I always remember... This might be a little stretch for this, but I, sure. it's that kind of the idea. I always remember as a kid, um, if I'm remembering it as vividly, it's probably a little bit older, you know, six or so. Um, but anything I was working with or playing with, I always had to be fair to my toys. Mm. Like, and it was to me, it's like kind of a version of this idea of as though they had feelings. Like my toys cared. Yeah. That I played with this one. Well, now I have to take a break so that I can be fair to this one over here. Or if they're playing a game in fantasy land, like this one needs to win just as many times as this one. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. You that had is. consideration for your imaginary friends. <laughs> I did. I absolutely did. You weren't a very egocentric uh, child. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe not. But yeah. Uh, yeah, giving them, but definitely that idea of like giving them feelings and mm-hmm. some like human qualities i don't know well yeah and i think they didn't talk about this a ton in the piaget primer but there is a discussion around this idea of free play nowadays which free play is basically just like <laughs> sending your kid out into the yard with yeah. just like themselves and just right. like have fun for the next couple of hours that that is kind of disappearing uh mm-hmm. nowadays that like parents want to pack this kid's schedule full of like, all right, you have dance practice and then you go right from dance practice to gymnastics and then, you know, this, this, this. And especially at this pre-operational stage, like the kid needs a lot of time to just sit in the driveway, like with a a box and just like have their own fantasy world because they're learning all of these things that, uh, you know, it's, it's not like, nothing's happening when they're having right, this kind of free play. Right. I mean, this is um, kind of the thing that 
I have in a gentle argument, mm-hmm. I will say, with parents just yeah. because of expectation of what a child should be doing, mm. right? And so many parents, you know, we're talking bougie areas of New York City. <laughs> there are high expectations yeah. on these kids. And some of them, absolutely like you're saying, they're going to leave my half-day program to go to their swim class, to go to their tennis class, to go to their chess class, like to the next thing, to yep. the next thing, to the next thing. Got to get into Yale. And, yeah, right? Got to start them young, yeah. <sighs> and like, yeah, there needs to be more, just let them be for a while. Why are we so concerned I mean, I guess that is the answer in some ways, right? Get them into Yale. But why are we so concerned about pushing them mm. so hard in this way? Where is my child? Is my child advanced in this? Like, yeah, let them free play and figure it out. I think we even fall into this. Like, I felt that sometimes in even in my school program yeah. of always giving them some sort of structure Mm-hmm. Um, where at this age, like a three-year-old, I get, they need less of that. They need a yeah. space to be safe and play yeah. and to just figure out their world. And I'm going to be there to answer any questions you have mm. and to make sure that you don't hurt yourself too bad. <laughs> yeah. Some, some hurting yourself is fine. Like we got to learn. Um, yeah. but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I've been. It's coming back as I read some of this and as we talk about mo- like the stages. Um, but that's been, a, that's been kind of an idea for me a lot of, yeah, just letting, letting a child, let them. Let yeah. them be, let them do, let them. And I think Piaget would yeah. back that up. Yeah. I mean, he's not here to he's speak not. for himself. But I, I, yeah. from what I understand, it sounds like he's very big on play and... Uh, that term free play wasn't really around then, but I think a lot of this symbolic play is pretty, pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe before we can hit, hit concrete operations, we can just talk a little bit about morality in this pre-operational. Oh, sure. Uh, so it's kind of that movement, right? In between, yeah. The way so he, we're in between pre-moral and exactly what, literal. What is it? What is it? Oh, conventional. Yes. Conventional. So conventional pre-moral to conventional. And conventional is basically parents are like the autocratic, you know, like benevolent rulers who what they say goes and like the law is the law. They take a lot of rules very literally. Literalism, yeah. And it's very much like, yeah, there's not a lot of wiggle room. There's also this term called moral realism which is the belief that the punishment must be related to the act Mm, committed mm -hmm. regardless of intent. Example, a child who breaks more cups accidentally should be punished more severely than a child who breaks only one deliberately. So Mm -hmm. they're not really able to grasp the the concept that like breaking cups is bad whether or not you get caught. It's very much like, oh, it's bad because I got punished for it. Yeah, I, I would imagine, I don't know this, but I would imagine given the way that kind of he categorizes and places the stages with the um, stages of morality with the stages of development, mm-hmm. like that I probably get to see like that movement, that cuspy area of mm-hmm. moving through this 
moving from pre-moral to like conventional. So mm-hmm. they're starting to, oh, okay, well, you say it, it must be this, that's, right? Yeah, that's and the law. it's wild to play with that idea. Again, back to like blowing a child's mind of they've developed the schema, maybe now a moral mm-hmm. schema. But, you know, that's a thing that I, I do enjoy playing with a little bit with their minds and seeing how they work through that. Um, yeah. For me, a lot of times, like, I will have my nails painted and that is a like that is them making sense of the world girls pa- girls paint their fingernails okay right yeah. that's the general thing and so a lot of i will say probably the older end of gir- more so girls that i work with um have that idea pretty concrete in their head right now mm. like this is the way it is um girls paint their nails and so they'll say jeff are your nails painted like, and they'll sit and they'll think about it. And I'm like, yeah, they are. Only girls paint their nails. Okay, I say. Like, um, am, are my nails painted? Yeah, they are. Uh, am I a girl? No. And I'm like, okay, so what do we do with that? <laughs> We're going to have like, to accommodate. Yeah, yeah. right? And so the, I kind of just let them sit in that. I'm not going to like, mm-hmm. how dare you? I get to do what I want. Like, you yeah. know, it's like just asking the question with it is really fun and watching them try to work through that because this is kind of an area of like, it's that schema, it's that assimilation, accommodation now. and But with this kind of version of morality of like what is good or bad mm. to do, well, this is like a, it's good for girls to paint their nails, but it's not good for anyone else to paint their nails necessarily. Like it's kind of this making them start trying to make framework for yeah. right and wrong in ways. Well, and I think another thing might be at play, which we haven't talked about, uh, con- he calls conservation. Oh. So yeah, we haven't children are that. not very good multitaskers at this age they are not able to think of things in two different categories right so some examples of this is a lot of times children at this age will think that uh the taller a person is the older they are Mm. because again going by their causality it's like that's generally true yeah yeah um but they are only able to see one of those things at the same time. So I'm wondering if that might also be what's happening sure. with like sure. every time I've seen somebody with nails painted, it's a girl. Like right. we can't absolutely like they can't break those two categories apart and see right. like man and nails painted. Wait, uh-huh. wait, what? Right, 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 <laughs> right. Those categories don't go yeah. together. So what do I yeah, they're not able to change that idea. And it's not until the next stage, the concrete operation stage, where a child is able to see these categories existing. And one of the examples they used in the, the, the Piaget Primer book, which I thought was great, was they show children um, like 50 wooden beads. Mm-hmm. And half of, or like a quarter of the wooden beads are painted white and the rest are left brown. And they ask the child, are there more white beads or brown beads? And the child will say, more brown beads. I'm like, okay, good. What about, are there more wooden beads or, um, are there more wooden beads or white beads? And the child, that like blows their brain apart because they're not able to understand that a bead can be both Both wooden and brown or wooden and white. So that's, 
you know, or I guess another example would be like apples and oranges are different.、Mm-hmm. They're different kinds of fruit, but they are also the same in that they are both part of the same larger category belonging、right. to fruits. Right. Like this type of thing doesn't really set in until concrete operations. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. This is the fun stuff of like I think about it. The fruits is a great example because we we play with this idea all the t- like snack time is a big thing of like same same I have apples you have apples but you're right many of them a sliced apple like for example、mm. like and seeing an apple and a and a whole apple like、yeah. that, I don't have the same snack as you、mm. you know I have a sliced apple you have a whole apple like that's not the same thing or but. They might be able to do something that's totally different in a way of like I have the same snack as you because my I have carrots and you have oranges and they're both orange but like we can only do one thing one them, at right? a time I can't do right I can't do both of them and so some ch-、yeah. children will do that differently、mm. some of them will will see this kind of category and put it in there and be like yes it's it's apples I can I can live in that world、um, but like some will only think in color. And I like I have the same snack as you. I'm like, oh no, not even close. Yeah, oranges, carrots, real、yeah. different here. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah. yeah. The other way, the other way, I think, because、um, I think this will lead into when we get into co- concrete operations, because this is a big part of concrete operations, is developing conservation. The other example、mm-hmm. that's great is when you show a child who is pre-operational,、uh, like two glasses that、mm-hmm. are both filled. The same, they're the same glass, and they're both filled with the same amount of orange juice. And then you pour one of them into a glass that is tall and narrow.、Mm-hmm. And then you ask them, "All right, is it which one has more orange juice?" The pre-operational child will say, "Oh, it's the taller、sure. one." And it's not until concrete operations that they're like, "Oh, they're actually still the same. It's the just same. that they're in different containers now." Right, Because right. again, they equate. You know, height to how much orange juice. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's and there's this, there's a fixation, I think, in that age of、um, like superlative, like,、mm. and so it's it's always looking like it's always better, bigger, best, like right. The biggest is best. Like,、yeah. The tallest is best, or whatever it is. It's like that superlative, like it. Yeah. So I think of that as they're like seeing the. Seeing the two glasses, well, which one do you want?、They're, they will always choose the this one. It's taller,、yeah. even though it's this exactly the same. Like this is the best. This is、yeah. the most, and like and we、yeah. again another thing in adulthood. Like we, the marketers still do that. <laughs> yeah, you、right? look at like the way that food is often、uh, advertised. It's like they give you that like large bag of.、Uh, Doritos that's actually only filled like halfway,、mm-hmm. but we think like I'm getting this huge bag, but it's like actually no, it's only、okay. half half full or、right. whatever. Yeah, and we're into the concrete operation stage、yeah. at this point. So seven to eleven years old.、Um, yeah, conservation is a big thing. Being able to classify objects.、Um, children start to abandon the animism and artificialism, and kind of have a more logical worldview. Still not.、Mm. One hundred percent, and then social socialization is also a big one in this stage. Like language starts to become a lot more socialized, and play also becomes more socialized, and cooperation.、Mm-hmm. Um, you want to maybe talk about 
language a little bit in concrete operations? Yeah. This is where it starts making a little bit of sense, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which just feels to me like it's less fun, but I have um, Oh yeah. You got yeah, something? I'm pulling up. No, go ahead. Oh, okay. Start there. So this is um from the PSJ primer. Quote The speech of six or seven year olds is still very egocentric. Conversations are often one sided, but there is a noticeable change. The child now pays attention to the speaker and responds to what has been said. There is an exchange of information. A conversation. A conversation. And An actual. Yeah. So there's actually a, a dialogue happening. Um, but yeah, still very often a one sided dialogue. And mm-hmm. like a seven year old is rarely going to ask you how your day is going after, you know, you sure. ask, you know, so sure. there's still that kind of egocentrism, but right. there, you're able to have that back and forth now. Yeah, that's what I think about. Like, even there, the, they can have a good conversation. We're talking now. I can ask you good ideas, but it is a rarity. And I always feel like the most pleasant of rarities when you meet that eight-year-old who asks a genuine question, who is able to actually, like, yeah. come back to you and, oh, yeah, yeah, what did, how was yours? You went, you know, how was your trip that you took? Like, just yeah. to ask a genuine question about it, it's like, okay, I like, <laughs> all right, this is the biggest sign of maturity, yeah. I would say, like, in any... But, it, it, yeah, and I, I agree, it's funny, because, you know, I teach drum lessons, and I had a kid who, he was, like, seven or eight when I started, and now he's 12. Okay. So, I've kind of seen him You're pass, this, yeah. I've seen him pass from this concrete operations to the formal operations, which is the final stage we'll get to. And, you know, I'd always ask him every week, like, hey, how was your week? You have a good week? And, like, you know, he'd talk about himself. And, like, and I remember maybe around, like, 11 years old, mm-hmm. the first time he was just like, how was your week? And I was, like, baffled. I was just like, <laughs> good. Like, thanks for asking. Like, you know, kind of congratulating yeah. him for making that jump into, like, oh, this this other person had a a week as well right and right. Like, you also experienced I, the world yeah like. <laughs> i also experienced the world um so yeah that was that sign but i think it's important to uh-huh. to kind of go back to what we were saying before about egocentrism and that it's not the kid is bad or selfish at this stage for mm-hmm. for not asking about how the other person feels again they just can't conceptualize quite yet that the other person's reality also exists mm-hmm. well maybe we can talk about um play that happens at the concrete Mm. stage so these are this is where games with rules start to happen Mm -hmm. and so this is from the piaget primer quote games with rules rarely occur before ages four to seven and belong mainly to the stage of concrete operations um and there's two kinds of games at this stage uh imitation games which are games that are passed down from generation to generation so this would be like hide and seek or hopscotch or basketball Mm -hmm. or spontaneous games games that are just spontaneously made up by kids um i can remember making up games with my friends as as kids where you just like yeah i'm the youngest of uh three boys and i like we still to this day like we like ma- games and ma- making up the rules to a game mm-hmm. is like that's that's our pastime. Like I remember it from being a kid. It's something that's like carried on. Um, yeah, I, I, I 
it's a an interesting thing of the kind of like moving into that like obsession maybe with the rules and how it is played right moving into mm. that like so now that comes into the um what the concrete operation stage and that mixes with <clears throat> i'm kind of going back now and like pulling in some of these yeah, right and yeah, wrong yeah. ideas but there's some literalness to it of how it should be done and so it's a it's a strict adherence right yeah if i'm playing a game like this is it there's maybe a little bit more of um of a preoccupation with like fairness and playing mm-hmm. it right and he's not doing it right like you know yeah. you can like you can hear kids saying that yep um well, yeah and i think it's important so yeah they do have this like growing sense of fairness and like you have to play by the rules but it's important to note that at this stage a lot of times the children, when asked to articulate what the rules are, they mm. are unable to. And this was wildly mm. fascinating to me. So they were doing, well, there's one uh, study, P- Piaget, where I think there were the kids playing jacks, the game of mm-hmm. jacks, around this concrete operation stage. And they're all successfully playing this game together. So... Piaget just assumed like, oh, they all understand the rules to this game. So then he would take the one kid out one at a time and ask them to explain to him the rules of jacks. And the kids would give like wildly different answers that in Piaget was just like, wow, like these kids are all able to play this game and none of them are able to articulate Mm -hmm. or actually understand Mm -hmm. what they're doing. That's fascinating. Which is such an interesting thing that, like, we can often, and he talks about this theme throughout where it's like, we can, we first learn language before we know what the words mean. We first Mm. learn to count before we understand that, you know, numbers stand for like a unit of measurement. It's like we learn to play the game before we understand what the rules of the game are. And that's just so wild that, like, yeah, that, that just blew me away. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 <laughs> that phrase, like, that was like a life. That was like a rule of life, right? We learn to play the game before we even know what the rules are. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Now we're getting very existential. Yeah. We're, we're back. Yeah. But, like, yeah. I mean, that's, that's really good. That's really true. Um, and it's not until formal operations where the, the child is, like, able to, you know, articulate, pull them, the, rules. articulate the rules. Mm-hmm. And again, this kind of maybe goes into, like, well, is it? that the child at that stage doesn't know the rules or they're just not able to articulate the rules because mm-hmm. those could be two different things. Sure. Sure. I wonder that too. Like I'm kind of reading back at some of this yeah. just wondering like that. And like, Oh no, like no, no how many, ahead. well, and like how many musicians do you know who are like incredible and can just, are just virtuosic in their musicianship. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you ask them to like explain what they did and like how they're so good. And their answer is just like incoherent. You're just like, wait, what? Right. You have no idea what you're doing. Right. Or you're just terrible at articulating it. (laughs) Like a lot of times the best performers are just horrible teachers. True. True. I love the idea though. Um, kind of looking through some of the, the play and the games, I think specifically as we're here, like games, games with rules Mm. and what the things kind of teach, you know, he goes through or they go through in here, like talk about the vocabulary for all those things that moves, but like concentration and how to share. Yeah. Turn taking. Yeah. 
turn taking. <laughs> I mean that, yeah, sharing turn taking, that flexibility, and like, yes, like yeah. it's it's fascinating. All of um, playing through different scenarios too. Like the it's it's at a it's a work through of the imagination of well, what could I do in this game? Right? Do mm. I? Because you have some choice necessarily. If it's yeah. like trouble, do I move this guy six spaces or do I move this guy? Mm. Like there's playing out all these scenarios. It's yeah, wild. All that we learned. Yeah, that. and again, that's just like Piaget's emphasis on play. Like mm-hmm. it's important, and kids are learning like so, so much so when they're many playing. Um, and just like another one that was in there, just like how to be a good winner or a good loser. Oh, yeah. That's a really important life skill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it is. And how to be invited back to the next game. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. And more, we talked a little bit about morality. Mm-hmm. Um, still at this stage they're in that uh what do we call it conventional conventional yeah yeah. conventional stage the adults are still the the rulers and you know benevolent and not to be questioned Mm -hmm. but they're starting to form their own right opinions about things and starting to kind of question the adults a little bit and in this piaget primer one of the the examples they used of somebody of a kid who's moving from the conventional stage to the autonomous stage of morality would be like Alice in Wonderland yeah, yeah. where the queen kind of rep- represents the queen of hearts in the Alice in Wonderland kind of represents this like dictator of an adult who's just like, that's the rules and it is what I say. And like, if you don't go with me off with your head and Alice starts to kind of like question and be like, wait a minute, like this is ridiculous. Like mm-hmm. these, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And like that thought would not occur to a younger child. Sure. But when Still a child is stage of believing that adults are, it just is what it is. So I think that's kind of showing Alice's transition from the uh, conventional stage to the autonomous stage where she then is saying like, She's mm-hmm. able to kind of realize, oh, these adults are all just grown-up kids with their own faults. <laughs> That's its own uh, mass blowed-up-like world, right? When you have to come yeah. to that realization. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shoot. They don't actually know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. They're making it up as they go, too. I've always thought it would be more comforting at, at that point, it's not comforting at the age of four, mm. but at this older stage, to be honest about, you're right, adults don't actually know everything either. Like, yeah. we're working through it together, bruh. Like, right. You know? But you can't tell that to a three-year-old. You don't want to tell that to a three-year-old. You just have to that might be like, listen to what I say so you don't die. In some ways, yeah, yeah you just have yeah. to, right? <laughs> we got to keep them alive. Yes. <laughs> And then yeah. explain why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've already kind of ventured into formal operation stage. This last stage, again, 11 to 16 years old. We've kind of already talked about how that transition in morality happens. Um, yeah. And the other just big feature of formal operations is this really where abstract thought comes online, being able to think of hypotheticals, uh, using deductive reasoning, looking at problems from different points of view and um yeah like understanding metaphor also being able to uh 
understand the future. Mm. Uh, which are all pretty... Who understands the future? <laughs> <important>. The concept <laughs> of the future. And again, a lot of this yeah. is linked to biology as well. You know, like our prefrontal cortex is developing, right. <laughs> allowing us to do a lot of this abstract thinking. Mm-hmm. And one of the critiques I, I heard of Piaget mm-hmm. um, when I was kind of doing some research was people saying this maybe is not a stage of development that all people go through and Mm. that like abstract thinking, like there are a percentage of adults that just um, are always going to either struggle with or be poor at Mm. abstract thinking. And I've read that elsewhere too. Like, you know, percentage of people like don't understand metaphor and uh like figures of speech so i don't know that i realized that yeah because that's how egocentric i am (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i i think that might be something to keep in mind with this and then um but yeah this Mm -hmm. is this is a big part of the the formal operation stage is Mm -hmm. thinking logically abstract thought and the kids before this stage tend to be very literal literal again like um you know if it's like be a doll and help me clean up this room they're like wait a minute how can i be a doll if i'm me like right just being able to explain explain that turn of phrase it's like you Uh have to be able to think that is a fun thing to get caught in like an expression right Mm -hmm. with a with a child at that at at a a literal stage of language yeah like you get caught in expression like you say something that we just say as a matter of expression like like you're saying like be a doll and it's like uh what's, what <laughs> that's gonna how be do, a pro- how do i that's gonna be a problem do you want me to be still and like i don't i don't know you told me to be a doll like, yeah yeah oh and then you're like okay yeah i i've realized let's let's rework yeah. my language you're always having to think through the language again it also made me like when i'm teaching drum lessons i use a lot of metaphor and analogy mm. and it made me realize that like a lot of that's probably not helpful mm. for yeah. kids that are before formal operations because they're probably just like all right just first you wanted me head. to play yeah. drums and now you want me to play basketball like what <laughs> right because that was right. one of the ways I, t- I taught kids how to to rebound the stick it's like oh it's like you're dribbling a basketball and yeah i could see how that would be like just too much for sure. a young kid sure just like yeah yeah, yeah. what's going I can't on make that but i'm yeah. playing drums yeah, i'm playing yeah. drums i'm not playing basketball what are you mm-hmm. what are you suggesting right <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and we already kind of talked about uh language at the formal operations as well speech is less egocentric they're starting to ask how was your week um able to use metaphor analogy um and then also they're able to give like genuine arguments which this is disagreement Mm. which is justified with logical fact or a causal explanation so they're actually be able to like we should play my game because uh, we played your game last time and it's only fair. Right. Right. Logical argument. Logical argument. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, it's like a little less, uh, it's just, there's a little less to say because it's like, yeah, like like, now we've kind of (laughs) like gotten there and what, like, yeah, yeah. now, now we're at things where most of us kind of understand how that going off that Piaget uh, also believe that that's the last stage. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. adults remain 
remain at that stage and just accumulate more information. But mm. it's not like there's any more like, uh, you know, dramatic changes yeah, yeah, yeah. in and how, how they're thinking learn. And, right. and learn. Yeah, it's just right. that you're just accumulating more information. Right. Yeah, I think that's um, good to kind of like at the last stage, like remind um, because it's like, there are obviously things that we are learning all the way, the what of what we are learning. Mm. But again, what he was focused on and what these stages are is how that information, how they are learning that. And that's what the stage looks like, right? And so yeah. now we've, the last stage we moved into, well, probably how you know to learn. That's kind of where we are now, right? Like <laughs> yeah. we're learning more stuff. We're learning more what's, but the how is, you know, how, it's how you learn. Like, yeah. 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 And I'm, super curious to learn more about like because there's a lot of other thinkers who study development mm -hmm. and you know we can even talk about people who talk about spiritual development and how like that's its Oof. own uh journey and that like you know you're talking about like in buddhism the different stages that mm. people move through so it's like Piaget kind of was just like all right i've, I've done enough i've brought you <laughs> to 16 like sure. i'll leave it to the sure to the gurus to talk yeah. about how the adult then develops further, right. both emotionally, cognitively, spiritually. That would be, uh, I, I would enjoy some of that idea of like taking, kind of piggybacking off of some of the ideas, but like in a different realm, like you're mm. saying, right? Like a spiritual development. It's like, I would wonder if there are similar ways, perhaps similar hows to how we learn these things or yeah. how we, it's hard to say, like, learn with spiritual development, but I don't know, whatever term there is, how we get that information or how we experience it. Um, I, yeah, that would be a, an interesting thing. It feels very spiral dynamic-y to me at this point. Well, <laughs> but, yeah, I was thinking also, like, you know, it's wild. Like, we we're talking about when the baby's first born, they view themselves as... They don't view themselves as being separate from the world. It's just like, yeah. I... I don't get this conception that like mom is this other thing. It's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. I am one with the universe. And then this kind of sense of self as being other separate other, yeah. starts to form. And then what's interesting is like some of the more quote advanced stages of spiritual development bring us back, bring us back to, to, oneness. to this oneness. So that's yeah. kind of a, a mind blow that's, moment as yeah. well. Um, which is interesting that there's kind of that cyclical uh -huh. thing happening uh-huh although i don't know that the the kind of enlightened yogis would call that egocentrism it's maybe like they kind of almost explain it as like a lack of ego but they do oh yeah the, the, the later stage, the later of it, stage. You mean. yes 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 but they, but they do describe it of, as a similar like the language around being not separate from other not separate from your surroundings yeah. that language is similar freud in civilization and his discontents he contended that that is what the spiritual feeling is. He he calls it the oceanic feeling. Okay. So he's like, all right, well, what is this spiritual oneness that, um, you know, these people who have these religious experiences are feeling? And he he kind of pathologized it. He's like, oh, basically, you're still, uh, you know, they're still babies in some sense, and yeah. like haven't grown out of this, uh, you know, very like early stage of feeling mm -hmm. one with everything mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. 
it is an interesting thing to contemplate. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I I like this idea because I I, th- I think even um, as I think through all of these, how a child thinks, there is um, there is so much that I wish we would be able to get back to even like mm-hmm. in the and there is some some very good ways in which they are viewing the world that has not yet been tainted, like knocked out of them that, you know, Mm. the sense that we're trying to knock into children, like we haven't polluted them yet. You know, there is still some of that purity and that innocence in how they think that I do honestly believe would be great. If as, Mm. you know, as we come through all these stages of development that we get back to on some level. Totally kind of throughout this Piaget primer, they, I thought, did a great job of giving examples of how different elements are still present in adulthood. That like, oh, actually, as adults, we still engage in practice play by running sand through our fingers. We still engage in symbolic play by um, daydreaming or like, Mm -hmm. you know, writing a fantasy novel. Mm -hmm. So it's like, even after we remove quote, move through these stages, like a part of them is still always present in the adult. For sure. For sure. That's a, that's a really cool point too. And that's, I, I had jot that down. I forgot to mention, I had jot that down because that is something again, therapy, psychology type stuff. Um, always hear the idea of like, they're in the room with you. Like all of these pieces of mm. you are still present. Right. Yeah. And that's something that I think of like all of these pieces of us. It's not like we're, one and done. I've moved through that stage. Yeah. I don't do any of that anymore. Um, like all of that in some way is still a part of us. I am every age I have ever been. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Comfort, comfort, baby Jeff. <laughs> Tell baby yes. Jeff it's going to be okay. Oh, let's yeah. not get into that. That'll be. <laughs> well, awesome, man. This was so much fun. <laughs> Uh, we've come full circle oh shoot this was so great and uh thank you so much yeah my pleasure this was great thanks for coming all the way out to roosevelt island for it hey this is my pleasure (laughs) cool man high five all right thanks for listening to unpacking ideas if you enjoyed the episode please share it with a friend or scroll down and write us a review or give us a rating I know that all takes a little bit of effort, but it really helps with the algorithm so that more people can discover the show. So thanks for doing that in advance. If you would like to get in touch with me, please visit unpackingideas.com. Or if you would like to see what's coming up on the podcast, uh, visit unpackingideas.com forward slash podcast. And there I post links to articles and essays and books that we'll be discussing on future podcast episodes. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time.